Hey, it's Pretty Little Grown Men. I am Davey Greenwald. And I am Dom Sinicola. Hello. We, we are um, periscoping this one again, so if you hear us talking to our um, real-time fans on social media, uh, that's why. Um, but this is going to be a grab bag episode. We got some suggestions from Twitter on things to talk about. Uh, we have a few ideas of things. Um, so we'll just kind of wander around the, the crannies of our brains. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we won't be talking about PLL too much, um, which is fine. You know, I think that we can all take a nice little break. Although we did get one, um, I guess we can start by, uh, talking about, um, one question that we were asked, which is, which is more controversial, the lost finale or the de facto PLL finale? That just occurred two weeks ago. I think this is a great ago. question, and I said this on on Twitter already. But I think they have very different audiences and media reception, mm -hmm. so it's difficult to weigh. Um, I don't actually know which did better in the ratings. Um, my guess is that they probably were not so far removed. No, I don't think so. Um, but I, you know, I think the last one was more controversial, or at least like had it's it had more media impact. Because there were just more people writing about Lost because it was a show for grown-ups. Mm -hmm. um, and it had been such a like broadcast TV sensation as opposed to being sort of uh, out in the boonies of ABC Family. Yeah, you know, it's, it's strange to, uh, to comment on the idea that Lost is more for grown-ups, which I think that it objectively is. But with the PLL finale... I do, you do you do see sort of a sea change in the way that media talks about Pretty Little Liars because I think that the finale was was so on the nose when it came to basically the the, the zeitgeist of you know talking about uh, all of these issues that seem to be a, a lot of topics about uh, of internet uh, writing. Um, I don't know if you could say that that people are going to be looking at Pretty Little Liars in the same way after this. That well, I as just, far as like age appropriateness, that's fair. I mean, I didn't see any new people weighing in on the finale. Like, no. I didn't. I didn't see it suddenly become okay. Here's like the Atlantic think piece, and here's the New York or the New Yorker essay, and you know these things that would have come out of like About a Lost, Lost finale yeah. or you know a Breaking Bad finale or one of these sort of prestige TV things mm -hmm. and i don't think pretty little liars is considered to be in that uh bubble which i you know i think we would argue that it has lots of reasons to be in those discussions mm -hmm. um so i think my maybe my real answer is that it's unfortunate that the pll finale is not seen as as controversial as the lost finale especially because the lost writers room like quite clearly for a long time had no idea what it was doing mm -hmm. whereas with pretty little liars at least when they say oh we plan this for four seasons well probably you know <laughs> yeah. it's, it seems like that that probably <laughs> happened and this wasn't like a rabbit pulled out of a hat when they had no other ideas yeah and i think that you know we're also talking about two completely different kinds of controversy mm -hmm. you know with lost i think the controversy uh is essentially one of expectations and more explicitly how Lost did not fulfill those expectations. Right. And with Pretty Little Liars, it was one of, um, 
you know, a, a, a much more social nature. <clears throat> right, because ultimately the mystery gets solved, and then the question becomes, well, how satisfying or how responsible or how hurtful was this solution? Right. So, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I mean, it becomes, it's really interesting. I mean, there's nothing about the Lost Finale which has any sort of social impact at all, you it's, know? Yeah, the closest it gets to any sort of social impact is, and I, I know this is one that I've brought up, in the um, uh, one of the many things that I really, really disliked about the last season of Lost is the way in which uh, I always saw it as a show about kind of like the X-Files in many ways, um, where you have two, two very conflicting beliefs about the nature of existence. Right. Um, and in the last season of Lost, it stopped having that conflict. It was all spiritual. Right. Well, yeah, belief wins. Belief wins, exactly. And, you know, that for, for me personally, that was a controversial decision on their part. Yeah. But I don't think that that really And that sort of happens... Through. Well, and that doesn't, they don't wait till the finale for that to be the case. Right. That's sort of like the entire, you know, as soon as Jack decides we have to go back, mm -hmm. then it does become about, then it does become like belief wins. Yeah. You know, um, of course, the, the irony, or maybe like the deeper level of that is that uh, Locke, who's the true believer from day one, mm -hmm. lost spoiler, uh, Locke's fate does not end well. No. You know, and so he's the guy who believed, and yet he basically uh, is murdered, and then get his, has his body taken over by a vengeful spirit. Yeah. So <laughs> the comment, I guess, on that is like, well, not only do you have to believe, you have to believe in, like, good over evil, and you have to be able to tell these things apart, as opposed to just, like, blindly believing in anything. So there is, like, there is a level of commentary, but I don't know, it's sort of sloppy. What about, um, what about... Jack's character made him the representative because in all the previous seasons of Lost Jack is the representative of science right um, and then in the last season he stops being that and he becomes representative of good right so what about his character makes that shift um, earned if, if it even was mm -hmm. uh, well I guess you could, I, you know, honestly, it's been so long, I don't remember all the, uh, the details. Because he's he, kind of a he comes back for a lot of it. I right. Mean, I mean, he comes back, he, he escapes, then he feels guilt, mm -hmm. you know, and he's not with Kate anymore, uh, and he descends into, like, alcoholism. And so I guess it's like his own personal redemption of realizing, like, you can't, leave these things behind mm. but then that also plays into ideas this idea of like being a doctor who has to fix everything and him like holding on to his past with regard to his dad mm. and so it's like it conflates this thing that was bad for him with this thing that is ultimately good for him and so it becomes like a very uh you know you're picking through the haystack to try to figure out well which how what am i supposed to draw from this thematically yeah. You know, um, and, of you know, as always, like the lost themes were super messy and like not really uh, governed by sensibility or, <laughs> or uh, narration. <laughs> uh, but so that's fi a, but final that's, answer, But that's lost. a great, no, I mean, that's a great question. <laughs> but yeah, I think final answer, lost. Um, All right. Uh, okay. That was our first one. So we're just going to move down the list. Um, 
Somebody on Twitter asked us to talk about sci-fi novels. Yeah. Um, I haven't read any in a long time. When I was a kid, I went through most of the Isaac Asimov catalog. Mm -hmm. I think that's really wonderful and worth doing. Um, I read a lot of Ray Bradbury as well. Um, Heinlein, Arthur C. Clarke. Um, the guy that I got into more recently that I've read a few books by and I want to read more is Philip K. Dick. Oh, I love Philip K. Dick. Because he has like five million books and he also, his ideas are among the weirdest and the most like energetic, I think. So um, I, I think I can safely say that I pretty much read sci-fi novels like 75% of the time. Okay. Of the things that I read. Um, I mean, growing up, uh, I really liked, um, you know, like Michael Crichton, for example. Um, I wish who I got into because of Jurassic Park, of course, because I was, I don't know how old when Jurassic Park came out, seven, eight. Mm -hmm. um, and then, then I read Sphere, which at the time I just thought was the, like the fucking awesomest book I'd ever read. Oh man. Yeah. I love Sphere. Um, and then, uh, and then for a really long time, my favorite book ever was Ender's Game. Oh yeah. No, I read, I read that. I read all the, pretty much all the Orson Scott card stuff that was out yeah. at the time. Yeah. Um, which in the, the whole series, uh, which I actually, I, I could actually talk about this, uh, I, I thought that the movie adaptation was actually pretty good. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. It um, wasn't like a classic film. No, um, no. But it was a very solid adaptation. If anything, I wanted more of the battle room mm -hmm. and just more like... Because it gets really weird at the end. Yeah. Because um, you have to somehow connect the dots between the computer game Ender keeps playing and the, the alien queen. Um, and I, you and know, they basically... They, they set it up for a sequel... They set it up so that Speaker for the Dead would make sense. Right, right. So they have to simplify a lot of the insane psychological tension of the book and all yeah. the stuff about his sister and brother being on, like, message... Basically being on, like, Orson Scott Card's idea of Twitter, you know, <laughs> fomenting political dissent. Yeah. Uh, which is sort of insane and very ahead of its time, I think. It becomes a very, very big part of the rest of the series is right. what Valentine and Peter do. Um yeah, which is totally excised from the book, or from the movie. Um, right, which which is fine, but it's just like, a lot of the book is about the horrors that, I mean, it's this idea of like putting this child through the horrors of war, and through what are the costs, you know, of creating this person who's going to be able to win this war. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he kills a person, or several people, and he goes through this whole process of becoming this hardened character, and he's supposed to be like, you know... Eight years old or whatever. And then, um, and then spoiler alert, he, spo seriously, spoiler alert, he destroys a whole race of aliens. <laughs> right. So he basically commits, thinks he's committing genocide. Well, it's under the guise of him playing a video game. Right. So there's all these like psychological levels, which on the page are extremely powerful. Yeah. And in the movie, you know, a lot of that sort of gets cut out. I mean, I think they did a good job with it, mm -hmm. but it's also this like very polished summer blockbuster type yeah. film as opposed to like, you know, if the director of District 9 had done it, it could have been like really gritty and psychologically intense yeah. in a way that clearly the makers of this movie had no interest in approaching. Um yeah, and there are there are still very intense parts of the movie. In fact, I think that the best part about the movie is who they got to play Bonzo, who is like the uh, weird. 
Uh, have you ever seen the, the the Kings of Summer? No. Okay. Uh, he's he plays a character in that. Um, he is a great teenage actor. Um, but all those scenes when they're fighting and when Bonzo gets hurt and you know falls and like breaks his neck essentially. Um, those are really uncomfortable scenes. The the scenes just of straight up like bullying, um, uh, and the and the way. What's so great about the novel and of, about the movie is that while it's difficult to watch children be put through such intense, uh, violent scenarios, it also points to the fact that children, perhaps more than adults, have real capacity for just like cold hard evil brutality because they don't have that kind of they don't understand the scope of what they're doing right you know so they 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 can be cruel and they can be mean more easily than adults can who have basically mitigated so much of their baser tendencies throughout decades you would hope right well yeah functional adults right, <laughs> right. You know, and that's and that's kind of like I really like that about the about the book is how um, it's just about a bunch of adults manipulating children. Yeah, I guess the thing that I that's sort of interesting to me about my sci-fi reading is um, almost all of it. You know, is basically like the canon of what my dad read. Mm -hmm. You know, I was basically going through his library, and even uh, Orson Scott Card. You know, that stuff was coming out. I guess he had new books coming out in the 90s that I was probably reading. But it's, so it's this whole sort of older uh, canon of books. And I haven't really, excuse me, I haven't picked up a new science fiction book in, oh, I don't know, 20 years, 15 years. You yeah. Know? I, I mean, I'm right now, uh, I feel like I'm, I'm trying to return to all the classics. So I'm, I'm reading the Foundation books right now. Oh, man. I'm on the second one. Awesome. Uh, yeah. I w you know, I would love to go back, and that's the other thing, is I read all these books when I was super young, and I was reading two books a week and just, like, chomping them down. Mm -hmm. And I have no idea if these things that I super loved when I was, like, 13 years old in middle school, if I would still be interested oh, yeah. in them now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I know, like, Heinlein, for one, uh, a lot of his stuff is, like, super sexist. Mm -hmm. um, or even Orson Scott Card has these really troubling views on homosexuality, you know? And so there's all this sort right. of, there's, there's political stuff that's in these books and associated with these authors that you don't really pick up on when you're 12 years old. And so I would be curious, too, to go back and read some of these things and see, like, if I absorbed it in a totally different way or if there were things I missed that would, would bother me now. Well, that's, um, in Ender's Game, a very clear example. Something that I never, ever picked up on when I was younger, and I don't see why I would have, is that the aliens are, they're called buggers, which is a, which is essentially a racial epithet. Um, well, or it could be about buggery. Exactly. And that's, and that's, and because Orson Scott Card is such a, a homophobe he's he's his he's kind of a crazy person um he obviously put that in there uh as a negative connotation um that sort of you know alludes to homosexuality and for the movie they changed it to the formics right um, they had to come up with a new word because yeah. that word that way it's not either about um 
gay sex or it's not about uh, it couldn't be the N-word. Right. Disguised as this other word. Right. So, yeah, it's like, you know, if you're writing that book in the 80s, I guess maybe no one had a problem with it at the time. You know, I mean, who knows? I'm, I'm not, I wasn't reading like science fiction book reviews in 1980, whenever the book came <laughs> out. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's like stuff like that when you're reading as a kid and you just absorb without any context and then you think about it a little later and it's like, oh man, I mean, not to be like your fave is problematic or whatever, but it's like, we are in a more, what feels like a more aware time. Mm-hmm. And a lot of this stuff, I think, just sort of got a free pass at the time. So it's, you know, it's, it's sort of awkward to talk about loving this thing that you maybe had some issues or definitely had some issues and you know you hadn't really thought about it in 20 years and you know one of the things that i think that would probably benefit from reading some of these books as adults is that especially with philip k dick and i've i've read a lot of philip k dick i haven't read all of it because there's i mean that seems like an impossible task million books he's like what 50 books more than that oh yeah uh, not to mention short stories. In fact, um, right now, if you go on to iBooks, uh, a lot of his stories are free through the Library of Congress. You can just download them for free. But they're like really, really early stories, so they're really kind of, you know, iffy as far as craft goes. He was just sort of finding his voice. Guy of endless ideas. But what to me, what Philip K. Dick represents, especially towards the end of his life, uh, when he was admittedly going crazy... Um, because of, and he admits, and he, when I say admittedly, uh, I mean bluntly, but also he admitted this, which is that drugs and all the drug use uh, just damaged his brain. Um, and uh, he uh, did a trilogy, I can't remember what the trilogy is called, but it starts with Valis, uh, V-A-L-I-S, and then it also includes uh, Transmogrification of Timothy Archer and something, I can't remember the third book. Um, but it's all, it's essentially, it starts with, uh, a weird semi-autobiographical book about a satellite, a godlike satellite that beams information into his head that is all of the information, that is the knowledge of all things. Uh-huh. And then through like really weird stories, sort of uncovers evidence that uh, aliens, I think that it's been a while uh, since I've read this, but that aliens were involved with early man and that Jesus might have been an alien or then it's, it's like, it takes science fiction and it wraps it indelibly with spirituality, which is, I think that's something that science fiction nowadays almost has to, has to do because the more, and this can lead directly into us talking about Ex Machina, the more advanced we become technologically, mm-hmm. the more connected we become with another realm of existence. Mm-hmm. And the more we sort of have to come to terms with that, what that means for, for our physical existence. Because... Well, and for, and for thousands of years of belief. Right, exactly. You know, I mean, if there's life on other planets, then it reframes, you know everything we believe about mm-hmm. earth and the creation myth and the whole thing. Right. Exactly. That, that, you know, even thinking about, um, you could go to look at interstellar, which, um, I, I haven't watched it again, but I, th- I'm doing a project, uh, 
that is really formless right now where I'm reading a bunch of movie novelizations and I read the movie novelization of Interstellar okay. while, while I was backpacking. Uh, and I think I like it more now. Okay. Um, because I think that's one thing that it, that it, that it tries to do is say that, you know, even, even, uh, going from the third, I mean, we live in the fourth dimension right now, but going to the fifth dimension, like, becoming a higher being is well within our reach. And it's something that we can grasp onto and understand, even though we have don't have the means of actually understanding what that is right now. That that's, that's kind of where we're going to go. That even that when our universe dies or stops or whatever, or life on Earth can no longer sustain itself, the solution essentially is going to be to have to um, go to a different dimension. Right. Well, and there's all these theories. I mean, even the other day there was some story about, um, oh, the scientist, uh, the famous scientist. Stephen Hawking. Stephen Hawking, exactly. Uh, who had a th- He was talking the other day about how he thinks um, there's another dimension on the other side of a black hole. Because yeah. how else do you explain certain you know how it contains all this stuff right Mm -hmm. and of course other scientists came out and said well we don't think so but um i mean that's an idea directly in interstellar that you could suck through into this other dimension Mm -hmm. and there's been a lot of theories about you know different universes and various dimensions and so on and so it's not so unlikely um i mean even if you just think about this dimension there's in, in, in a virtually infinite amount of worlds and potential uh, planets with life and Earth-like planets, and they're starting to yeah. get they're starting to discover planets that are more and more Earth-like. So it's you know we're this is just like the very 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 beginning of our understanding of the universe. Oh, absolutely. And it's a shame that we're not going to be here in like a thousand years to see what is understood. Mm-hmm. At the same time, maybe the oceans will rise and we'll all we will have like failed at our potential. You know, I mean, that's that to me is like, as someone who is super interested in science, and like a lot of that interest comes out of science fiction novels yeah. uh, and visions of the future. Right. Like the fundamental problem of humanity is like, okay, do we destroy ourselves before we like reach this like great utopian, you know, visionary perspective? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I think the odds are like fifty fifty. It's that, really hard to say. There's a uh, speaking of a modern uh, science fiction writer, uh, one that I love is Neil Stevenson. Um, Who but, I have not read. Uh, God, he's so good. And he continues to, to... He just put out a new book that I haven't read, um, but he's a really fantastic writer, a really good storyteller. But uh, a modern writer who has tackled the idea of colonization of the, of the solar system um, is Kim Stanley Robinson, who did, I think it's called 2312. Um which is not only basically saying that that we uh, we have to colonize the solar system in order to live because um, and people still live on Earth, but it's like they they're basically like poor people. Right. Um, I mean, that's sort of the same idea of the Galactic Empire novel or the um, the initial like Pebble in the Sky, the initial um, mm, Asimov books. Yeah. With so, like the Earth people and the spacers. Yeah, and he. Uh, and basically, they say that like you can you colon, they colonize the solar system um, through hollowing out 
and it's only one part of the this very expansively imagined novel. Uh, they hollow out meteors, um, and then basically terraform inside the meteors and create ecosystems huh. inside them. Wow! Uh, much like the the big space station in Interstellar, that you know, like the circular where you look up and there's you know people like houses on the other on, like on top of you yeah because they because they solved gravity they solved gravity um yeah i uh i, I mean i could talk about sci-fi novels forever because there's just so many well, great authors let's talk about ex machina because um we've both seen it now mm-hmm. and we haven't really dug into it i think it's a I thought it was a great movie. I thought it was really interesting. Um, I mean, one sort of critique it got is it plays like a very long episode of Black Mirror, uh, which I agree with. I don't find that to be a critique. Yeah. Um, I thought one thing that, you know, with movies like this, one thing that I think that, that gets underrated is just the aesthetic and technical quality of it. Um, just the fact that it's like a beautiful movie mm-hmm. and it creates many shots that are instantly pleasing and memorable and have a specific identity mm-hmm. um and of course like the art direction the creation of the robot all of these things are done in like a really um careful and uh you know impressive way and i think it's easy to sort of go into a movie like this and critique it based solely on the plot um and that to me means you didn't really watch a movie you just sort of like read the you know, subtitles or whatever. Um, so I, and I thought all that stuff played into the movie as like almost a horror movie. Mm-hmm. Um, especially the color red is everywhere. You know, I thought it was really well done and all the, all the sort of aesthetic stuff impacts the plot and it impacts the characters and it gives you like a vibe and a feeling that, that carries through in a really effective way. So I, I've spoken I think a decent amount about this movie uh, before you had seen it. And if I remember correctly, I think my main points were that I really admired the movie and I enjoyed watching it. Um, and I, uh, I thought, I thought it was aesthetically very pleasing. It was well-written. It dealt with ideas in ways that weren't pedantic while they were still exponential um, or not exponential, expositional enough to um, help someone who isn't familiar with a lot of the ideas that it's trying to wrestle, uh, help them understand it. Right. Um, well, you, in a very in a very narrative way. You were saying that you felt removed from it. Right. You and didn't I, feel, you know, and I feel this way about records a lot of the time, where it's something that I can't find anything wrong with it. Mm-hmm. I can't really tell you why. I think I don't think it's bad. It just doesn't connect to me emotionally, and it might even be by an artist I like, and it's just an album that I listen to it, and nothing happens, and it's just like a question of chemistry right. and feeling, and there's no explanation for it. Yeah. And that's where I find, you know, as a critic, I have a real hard time trying to zero in on that record. It's almost like, uh, I mean, and I think that it works almost especially well for Ex Machina, maybe even to the point where it feels a little designed, is that, that like, that's the uncanny valley right there uh-huh. you know like this un this sort of ineffable unknowable unsettling thing that you can't quite put your finger on uh-huh. you know and maybe that's kind of like that's why i feel like it almost feels designed it's 
I think that I already said this at one point, which is like, I felt like the movie was having a Turing test with us, uh-huh. which is impressive, but I don't necessarily know if I like, if I like that. Sure. You know, I'd rather have an emotional experience than, than have what I think is an emotional experience, but I'm not quite sure. I, I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I definitely connected to it. Um, I think one thing that was great about it, if you haven't seen the movie, well, I don't want to spoil what happens at the end. But you just say spoiler alert. Well, I don't want to. Spo- I don't want to spoil the ending because uh, it's a real. <laughs> it's a newer movie, and people may not. Have- it's. Did you think it was pessimistic? I thought it was, I wouldn't say pessimistic. I would say just say realistic, like bluntly I, realistic. I think what's interesting about it is if we're it basically. I think the kind of hook of the movie is it puts out the idea that this inventor is God. Right, and it, that's an idea that comes up early in the movie. And so the question of the movie becomes: What if God is flawed? Mm-hmm. What if God is not this perfect, omniscient creature? Yeah. And I mean, talking about spirituality, if if man is capable of creating in this godlike way, then what is God? Right. right? And so I think that's not something that the movie sort of deals with, um, but it's a question you can walk away with. Uh, is what if God is flawed? What's who's to say? Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know. Um, so I thought that was an interesting idea that got played out. Um, like the limits, or maybe the maybe it's maybe the movie is trying to say here are the limits. We aren't gods, and here's the limit of hu- here's humans are flawed, and here's the limits of what we're capable of, and here's why that will fail. Yeah, and I, I mean I agree with you. I think that it's. It seems like I, I guess what I what what is also really depressing about about the movie for me is that there was so much inevitability to it, and I think that even in the movie, at one point, um, I can't remember the, the 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 creator what what his name is, but he says like if if I didn't do it, someone was going to right, you know. Which is, and then the end of the movie happens as it does, and in, I think that in many ways you can kind of see the ending coming, but I think the way it happens is surprising enough. Yeah, because a lot of things happen quickly, and um, you know there is one little twist uh, right. that I think is genuinely surprising and cathartic. I mean, one thing that I, one thing that's interesting to me about this summer in movies is that the two best sci-fi movies of the year, as far as I'm concerned, were this movie and Mad Max Fury Road. Mm-hmm. Um, the most interestingly imagined, um, the most, you know, just the most interesting, smart movies, uh, and in Mad Max's case, the most, like, um, special effecty and just vividly realized movie, yeah. uh, the most, certainly the most, like, the best action movie of the summer. Mm-hmm. And without spending twenty million, you know, without spending a hundred million dollars on CGI, because mm-hmm. a lot of it was practical effects. But both of these movies are essentially about like uh, feminist rejection of male uh, of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. You know, of like being indentured or being ser- being uh, in servitude to these like powerful male characters. And in both of these movies, you have these these women basically rejecting that and. Uh, using violence to escape. So I think that I think that Mad Max does that in a really um, 
in a really natural way. There are parts of Ex, of Ex Machina that felt a little too on the nose when it came to that idea, uh-huh. um, you know, because these women in Ex Machina, and I don't, again, I don't think this is going to really give much away, but they're they're literally slaves. Right. Um, they don't have any choice. Right. Um, and they're not given any choice. Uh, the which isn't to say that that idea isn't visually expressed in really compelling ways. Um, there's a really sort of well, aren't they? I mean, aren't they slaves in Mad Max as well, though? Outside of Furiosa. Yeah, but I think that the the way that Furiosa, um, the way that Furiosa, the, I think the way that Mad Max deals with uh, those ideas of of feminine of of women taking power is that not only are they rejecting the patriarchy, they are also given power. Max gives them power. And I think that that's done in some really um, great, subtle ways in, the, in Mad Max. Whereas in Ex Machina, it is all just taking power against, or from people who don't want you to have it. Mm-hmm. Uh, who, who have it only because they have, penises well well i guess then they're also kind of human <laughs> they're also human well what makes it. it you know and i guess we should if we're being um uh proper modern intersectional uh, whatever we are uh we should disconnect the idea of having a penis from being masculine but right. um what do you think makes them what do you think gives the characters of mad max what what do you think gives them power? Because outside of I don't really see that. I mean, I think Furiosa is certainly depicted as like this lieutenant in the in yeah. the like sand people disaster army, mm-hmm. but at the same time she still takes orders. You know, she doesn't have she's still dependent on this terrible king dude for water. You mm-hmm. know, it's not like she has she's been trying to she was taken into servitude when she was a child. You know, so I don't really see what her agency is, except for the fact that she's earned enough trust that she's able to commit an escape versus a robot who has no trust and has to earn it herself in order to, you know, break out of this problem. Yeah, I guess I'm more thinking about um, the way in which Max gives her, I mean, or not. Well, Max, Max defers to her, defers to her where he admits that he doesn't have. I don't want to say give because that means that he's like bestowing power upon her right. on his terms. They're equals. They're equals sure. exactly, and he and and he's automatically put into a position of power because he's a man when he meets them, um, which I think is just sort of in the general dynamic of he's this gruff, scary guy in this weird face mask. Who has the gun? Right, and and I think that's actually a good scene when Furiosa basically beats the shit out of him, and takes the gun from him. Right, and that's her winning power. And then, but I, but I'm thinking more of the of that that one scene where Max can't can't get the shot with the sniper rifle, and he admits that he yeah is she's like, the better shot, and she takes it and crushes it, and he hands her the phallic symbol. Yeah. Oh, the good, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't know. I think, you know, I didn't go into these movies 
sort of wanting to examine them through a feminist lens, but I was like so deeply satisfied that someone would make these violent sci-fi movies and basically make them about that. Mm -hmm. And there was, you know, there was a feminist critique of Mad Max that it wasn't feminist because it does play out through the use of violence, which you can attach as like the sort of patriarchal good, um, which I think is a fair critique, but I think what the movie is really about is like, in this dystopian patriarchal society, what does feminism look like? Mm -hmm. What does liberation look like? And the answer is not peaceful protest. No. You know, I mean, the answer has to be violence because it's, there is no, there, you can only be met with violence. Mm -hmm. Like there is no logic. Um, And I don't know if you can use that as a metaphor for the world. I mean, the movie certainly is not telling you to go out and, you know, go kill anybody or whatever. Mm -hmm. But, um, for what the movie presents in its own internalized world, I think it is very much, you know, a feminist work. And I really, uh, the my favorite thing about it really is that it is this Trojan horse of a movie where you think it's going to be about Max and it ends up being about Furiosa and she's yeah. the main character of the movie. And putting Max into it is just like this convenient way of like getting people to come see the movie and tell this other story, uh, which may not have like gotten through either the Hollywood system or gotten to audiences if it was just presented as an original idea about this Furiosa character. And the initial critiques from like the psychopath men's rights advocate guys on the internet were like, don't go see this movie. It's a Trojan horse. And like, it totally is. But that's what's (laughs) genius about it because it got you to go see this movie you might not have seen and you love it because it's great. Well, and what's also awesome about it is that it it set up its methods three movies ago because the Mad Max movies and more so as they go on they aren't about Max as the super awesome fleshed out character they're about Max as the cipher of the survivor uh-huh. who basically is just i mean he's like bearing witness he, yeah he's just sort of a vessel that we attach ourselves to amidst this chaos that greets us at the end of the world and i think that it's uh it's it's great and that's and that's why max is like he doesn't say much that's why he doesn't have much of a character to him he just that's why if you really want to get get down and dirty with timelines and what george miller has set up it doesn't really make sense unless max is this sort of like ageless immortal uh-huh you know and and I love that idea. I love that this isn't really about Max. Right. And I wonder if... It's really funny because I wonder if Mel Gibson ever realized that because he seems, even especially now, and just today there was another report of him doing some fucking crazy asshole thing uh. to a, uh, a woman photographer. Uh, he seems too self-absorbed to understand that as the intention of the original movies. Right. Right. Well, that makes sense. I mean, and this leads us into talking about... Um, Speaking zombie. of dystopias. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I wanted to talk about the zombie video game The Last of Us, um, which is a dystopian survival horror game. And I think, you know, the, the idea of dystopia is something that obviously appeals a lot in sci-fi and in genre, you know, across... Um, platforms and across art forms and I was thinking playing this game um, 
My favorite genre of game is the third-person shooter, particularly the third-person zombie shooter. My favorite game ever is Resident Evil 4. Mm -hmm. And this game, The Last of Us, which I... It's a few years old, but I just, just got caught up with it a few months ago, um, is the first game I've played where I was like, wow, I might have actually enjoyed that more. Uh, this might be my new favorite game. Mm -hmm. And it's basically like... A lot of it's very similar... You know, you have a set amount of ammo, you have a set amount of, like, health. Um, you have to, like, be careful about how many guys you shoot because you need to go pick up more ammo. It doesn't give you an infinite amount of fireballs or whatever. Right. And you get progressively more powerful weapons as you go through it. You fight progressively more weird and difficult um, villains. So it's, it's, you know, a similar setup. But The Last of Us also gives you this very cinematic story these relatable characters and it's all about like what the end of the world would really look like what choices do you have to make what are the limits of morality and i think what i like about dystopia is it makes choices very easy to make mm -hmm. you know you're not it's it's escapist in this very strange way because you're not thinking about all the weird gray areas of your life like oh, how was my work day? Or how do I pay the rent? Or am I going to go to the gym today? Mm -hmm. Or like, who's this person texting me? You know, who do I swipe on Tinder? All of these things mm -hmm. become like, which are very like, sort of not really very relevant concerns if you think about your life as like living or dying, yeah. right? And in these dystopian scenarios, okay, your life becomes very simple. It's don't get killed by marauding zombies. Don't get killed by a marauding band of people in a van. Yeah. You know, make sure you have something to eat, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like make sure you have ammo for your gun. That's pretty much your day, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I think that's very appealing because it just makes it very simple uh, to kind of go about your day and make those choices. And it's it's weird to call it escapist because obviously it's not this like pleasant scenario yeah, right. and you wouldn't want to be thrown out of your like very comfortable, privileged life to have to deal with these decisions. Mm -hmm. But to escape into them in a video game where the thing you have to decide is like, okay, am I going to try to sneak by these zombies or am I going to kill them? If I start killing them, am I going to be able to kill them all without like bringing in a horde of them, whatever? You know, uh, these are very like dramatic and powerful choices to have to make. Um, and I just really enjoy making them. That, that sort of, you know, I, I wonder about this in, um, I think that, a lot of our popular culture uh, is centering more and more around the idea of survival, where maybe together we're starting to admit that, you know, we, that we're past the point of no return, that, that we, we will encounter some sort of epic scenario where we either have to survive or, or not. Right. And you have the opportunity then to like rise to heroism. I mean, like a movie like San Andreas is okay. the perfect example of that. Or um, Independence Day or any of these like sort of huge disaster movies are really about ordinary people being placed in this situation of like life or death. Save the person, save your friends or not. Well, what about, um, you know, what about... Uh... I think of like Walking Dead or even Mad Max, where the idea is is survival, where that's that's all you do. You know, you don't you don't form communities. 
You don't care about people. Mm -hmm. You just survive. And I wonder, you know, that that sort of idea or that imperative of self-preservation exists in us. You can recognize it and you see it. Um, and I think The Walking Dead is a, is a good example of that because in the end you question... You, you, you question the ties that bind people together. Right. And so, well, and The Last of Us is very much about that because you you basically are playing this older man uh, who has this questionable past, mm-hmm. and the opening scene of the game, which is really jarring and, and dark, is the beginning of this zombie outbreak, and you are basically going home to be with your daughter, your teenage daughter. Mm-hmm. You play as the teenage daughter and wander around the house mm-hmm. for a little bit, um, and then at the end of this like opening vignette, she dies. Yeah, yeah. and you've already, you've already played as this character, and then she gets killed off. Right. So the game is very clever about establishing this real connection between you and this character, and thus the loss of the central character who you're going to go on to play, mm-hmm. um, who has this you know ten twenty years later I can't remember, but like at some indeterminate point in the future when you've just been living in this world forever, you have this teen girl thrust upon you as like your ward and you have to take her across the country. Um, And the game kind of positions you where you have these connections that are destroyed or you make new ones and then of course they're going to come to bad ends Mm. because it's that kind of game. But um, it ends up being about the relationship between the older man and the teen girl, Ellie, and he rejects having a real relationship with her for a good chunk of the game. He doesn't want to have that relationship uh, and you can't really afford to emotionally because over and over, one of the things that really struck me about the game is, you know, you're killing zombies, but mostly you're dealing with other people, mm-hmm. you know, who want to kill you and take your weapons and all that stuff and wouldn't think two seconds about it. Yeah, it's, it's, it is strange that the point of a lot of this type of, of genre content, be it a, a book or a video game or a movie, a TV show, um, is centered around the idea that your greatest weakness, your emotions, are what you need the most at a time like that in order to stay human, to, to live a, a fulfilling life given the circumstances. And uh, I, I was listening to a, another podcast. Uh, when I'm not listening to this podcast... Uh, religiously over and over and over again you know one thing that i've noticed as a total side note when i was i uh i noticed that i basically i listen to our old podcast because i want to see whether i sound stupid or not um half the time i do and half the time i don't no you're doing great (laughs) one thing that i noticed that i do say a lot is essentially that's a great word (laughs) That's a very... I feel like I'm killing that word. It's a crucial word. No, it. you know, it's interesting because I, I transcribe my interviews all the time. And you always are going through your interviews being like, oh my God, this is terrible. And well, now I can listen to them and I'm not very bothered by them. Mm-hmm. Um, but in part, that's because you go back and listen to the old ones and you're like, wow, I need to like be a lot sharper. Yeah. And I mean, part of this is like respecting the other person you're on the phone with right not like beating around the bush of a question yeah yeah uh so anyway I, i'm trying i'm actively trying not to say essentially okay i'm more so hey viewers at home listeners at home uh if i say essentially um tw- you can tweet 
tweet at me or tweet at our account. Every single every single time I say essentially tweet at us. <laughs> um, anyway, I was listening to this other podcast, excuse me, called um, it was one I had just found out about called Vermont Rumble Strip, I think. Okay. And Maybe it's. Uh, I only listened to one episode, and it was just a guy telling his story, but it was a really sort of heartbreaking kind of thing, where this guy, um, he decided to hike the Appalachian Trail, and um, halfway through his trip, he got a call that his son had killed himself. Oh, Um, And so, in order to deal with his grief, this guy... um, decided to uh well so he finished the hike um and he found that it was like a really therapeutic way of dealing with his grief and so he decided that um in order to basically continue to get over his son's death he was going to hike around the united states Uh which he did and i don't they didn't he wasn't very he was telling the whole story so he wasn't very clear about how long it took him but um i don't want to this here's another spoiler, but it really gets to my point. Uh, with about like three weeks left to go, his his daughter was going to come and meet him at one point, and so he was. It, it was like a day or two before he was supposed to meet her, and he got a call from his uh, sister that his daughter had died from a drug overdose. Oh God! And so I, I feel like I heard a story like this where a, a man was walking across the country, like, in memory of some lost child, and he got hit by a car yeah. while doing that. Something like that. I mean, that's that's really how it plays out. Uh, and this guy, who's been pr- of pretty good spirits as he's telling the story, just breaks down this podcast, obviously. And he said one thing that really stuck with me, is he said, uh, um, I don't know why this stood out to me, because I feel like this is kind of an obvious idea. He's like, your life is not your own. It belongs to other people. And I think that that's kind of, you know, not only does that sort of explain why suicide is such a such a difficult thing to deal with for those who uh, are are left, it's it's also just in these scenarios where these people are these dystopian fiction fictional futures where everyone is sort of just based on like thinking of only thinking about survival. It's like there has to there has to be more than survival. There can never right. just be survival. Right. There has to be some some reason to live. Like your life your life can't only be your own. Mm-hmm. You like that. There's almost no point to surviving. Then, like, what are right. you gonna do? Just wake up the next day and just go about. And I think that you see that on, on The Walking Dead is the more that the show goes on, uh, and just sort of keeps sort of retreading a lot of the same things as it sort of trundles into this endless future is that these people just are broken down by their inability to only survive. Right. You know, they almost like lose the, and I, and I think like in the most recent season of walking dead after, uh, again, spoiler after, um, Beth is killed. (gasps) Continue. (laughs) Sorry. No, no, I don't watch the show. Okay. Uh, his uh, her older sister just like she basically just like doesn't want to just doesn't want to survive yeah because there's no point left right you know she starts to question why she would do that this it's almost like her I mean you could you could argue that she has this relationship with Glenn and all this stuff but in essence 
her life was live was partially lived for another person, and when that person no longer exists, then you're back to living your life only for yourself, and you just can't do it anymore. You lose the point. Right. It's almost like what carries us to every new day is the idea that we're living for more than just ourselves. That's an interesting idea. Um, I mean, one one thing I like about zombie movies is they're ultimately never really about the zombie. The best ones are never really about the zombies. They're about how we treat ourselves in the face of the end of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the the Night of the Living Dead movies are like the master class of how to portray this, mm-hmm. um, especially the first and the third one, uh, Day of the Dead, yeah. I think. Um, Dawn of the Dead is like the weird carnivalesque one where they're riding around in a mall and it's a super surreal interesting movie and that gets it the idea of like hedonism in the age of apocalypse and like with nothing left to lose what would you do um but in day of the dead it's more about these people in this military base basically going crazy (laughs) and what it inflicts on you and like the alliances that are formed and the relationships that are formed and like how people choose to treat each other Mm -hmm. when there are no rules, when everything is gone and it's stripped, stripped down to like life and death. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think those are really powerful, dramatic things to, to watch and to think about. Yeah. Who, who, who are we at the core of ourselves? Are we, are we just our, our sort of, um, over-cultured animal instincts? Are we just a, a, a series of denials? Or are we better than our origins? Are we better than than our sort of animal cousins? Well, and I think the flip side of this, to take it back to sci-fi, is like in Star Trek, the original series, where you basically have this utopian society, um, you know, it's... Uh, you don't have you it's post money it's post you know race and and gender being issues mm. you have this like equal very equal presentation uh on the bridge of the different characters who are there and they're out on this exploring mission and everything's all gravy but they're faced with these like end of end of the world scenarios in that they're going against these killer robots or or new aliens or artificial intelligence or whatever it is Mm -hmm. where in many of the original series episodes the ship breaks down and they're trapped on this alien world so it's sort of like this way of creating that same drama Mm -hmm. where captain kirk has to say well we as human beings are fundamentally this way and so that's why we won't serve you all-powerful alien or that's (laughs) how i'm going to outsmart you super smart robot yeah you know because of essentially like it's very much about like the power of humanity and yeah. the, the power of the flaws of humanity and like why it's so important. So it's like, it definitely has a pr- very particular viewpoint and agenda, yeah. but it, you know, it plays out that drama by creating these, uh, these essentially apocalyptic scenarios. Uh, do you want a hard pivot into something completely different? Okay. Let's, let's talk about, um, Hulu and yeah. Netflix. So, uh, in case you haven't heard, Hulu is now offering a service, um, a version of its of its subscription service where you can get no commercials, um, which, if you've ever watched Hulu, can get pretty annoying because 
Sometimes you'll have a commercial break, especially during longer shows, that is four to five minutes long, and they show you the same commercials over and over through the whole TV show. And there, it almost you almost wish that you were watching regular cable sometimes because you're like, so at you least could, I'll see a different commercial. Well, so that you also, so you could TiVo it and skip forward. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I thought the uh, the reason we don't have uh, Hulu and the reason we have Netflix is because Netflix is commercial free. Mm-hmm. Hulu has commercials. If you're paying for a service, and then maybe this is silly when you think about it in terms of paying for cable, but if I'm paying for a thing, I don't also want to be shown advertisements. Yeah, so... Which is understandable. So basically, Hulu is saying like, "We we hear you. We have to pay for this shit somehow. So we're just gonna we're gonna charge you an extra four dollars. Um, so instead of eight dollars, it is now twelve dollars. What I I think actually, my guess is that most people will stick with the cheaper option. I think just, so. And just be like, I don't care. But I care. Yeah, and I think that you know I think that um, it's worth it. Uh, I do think that what's really funny is that Hulu um, is often pit against Netflix and now Amazon Prime, which is becoming better and better, which Amazon Prime has a really great selection of stuff, like surprisingly so. And HBO Go slash now. And HBO Go slash now. But what's really funny is that for $20 a month, you can get both Hulu and Netflix, mm-hmm. which is substantially cheaper than buying cable. And so it's almost like, hey, Hulu and Netflix keep fighting because in the end, I win. You know? Right, right. Um, but I do think that uh, one thing that... I mean, I don't want to get this in, to be sort of a, a major defense of Hulu because... Well, you should... I, You know, as a Netflix, I think most people... I think the average person, you know, it's like Xerox or Google, right? Like Netflix is so ingrained in popular culture as the way you stream stuff that you have the phrase Netflix and chill or whatever. You don't think about, I'm going to go Hulu something. You're going to go Netflix something. So I think because Netflix like has reached like generic verb status, it's important or it'll be interesting for you to say, well, here's why Hulu is a worthwhile thing. I do think that okay, that's that's a good point, and I will do that because I think that is something that as we were talking about before is it's important. <laughs> if this is very important, so pay attention. <laughs> that from this point forward, you pay attention to the to the trajectory of these two services because one is going in the complete opposite direction of the other. Um, Netflix. Uh, so what recently happened in the world of Hulu versus Netflix is that Hulu um, or Netflix lost its rights to a lot of movies that were distributed through Epics, which are a lot of the new movies that uh, you see on Netflix. So you're going to see a lot of movies that are gone this month, uh, like a lot. Um, and uh, two or three or four years ago, Netflix lost its deal with Criterion to Hulu. So now Hulu has a very large portion. At one point, Hulu had almost all of the whole Criterion collection. That's no longer the case. Uh, But it has a very large portion of the Criterion collection. Um, 
Hulu now has that deal with Epix that used to be in Netflix. Uh, and uh, Hulu is also starting to get CBS shows, which at one point was the exclusive realm of Netflix. Um, so essentially, Hulu is becoming this film powerhouse. Um, well, also Seinfeld now. In Seinfeld. So it has a lot of TV options missing from Netflix. So Hulu is moving towards comprehensiveness, where it's trying to really uh, bolster its movie section, which I know that a lot of people don't watch Hulu for, but it actually has an impressive movie section, and it will only become more impressive, especially now that the Epic deal is hit. Um, Netflix, uh, it's, it's trying to bolster its... It, who is trying to bolster its, um, what were we saying? Okay, Hulu uh, is going towards the way of movies, whereas Netflix is going what, the way of the t- way of TV shows. Of TV shows, right? And the thing, I mean, the thing we were talking about before the we were theorizing before we started the podcast was, you know, of course, all these services have mountains of analytics, and if Netflix is seeing people coming onto their service and binge watching TV then it behooves them not to spend all these millions of dollars to get these new movies mm-hmm. and to just invest more in original programming and to get people to sit on Netflix all day or over the course of multiple nights watching a TV show, which encourages you to stay on Netflix as opposed to, well, I watched the 20 movies I want to see. I can cancel this thing now. But Netflix doesn't also uh, doesn't have the same kind of access to new TV shows that Hulu does. So... I think that as Netflix is moving towards original TV content, and they're also, you know, starting to produce their own original movies, um, which may or may not be any good. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're going to make all these like terrible Adam Sandler. movies. Oh God, these Adam Sandler movies, I, which which seems a like a decision. huge. It seems like a horrible decision because he hasn't made a great movie in you know many many years since we were teenagers. Well, I think that's maybe the case. Is they're not thinking of. Um, I don't think that Netflix really thinks about, uh, when it comes to movies, I don't think that it has an understanding of quality the same way that it might have uh, for TV. For TV. Well, it almost, you know what it feels like to me? It's like, you know, when Mariah Carey gets a new record deal and she gets this gigantic sum of money based on the fact that she is one of the most successful people ever, but is not really as is she's not particularly relevant in the modern era and she's never going to duplicate those successes but executives look at at this person who's had this huge track record and think well she's done so great before yeah you know well and that's i mean and i also think that you could point to adam sandler as someone who makes cheap movies that make money you know sure i think that it's like no one i think looks at an adam sandler movie anymore uh and thinks that it was well made um, now, Pixels is a perfect example of a a Adam Sandler movie that had a blockbuster budget behind it, and it failed miserably. Right. So um, he's he's better off making movies for $30 million doing poop jokes. Right, because that's what makes him money, because they make the money back, plus then some, and, it's, and it pleases the people who want to watch it anyway. And I think that's what on, is on Netflix's mind. But the reason that Hulu, I think in the very near future, will be infinitely better than Netflix. Or it'll be a very different... I think it'll be very different. Because Netflix, I think, will be more... You'll More you'll watch Netflix because of all of its original content. Right. It'll just... It'll be like HBO. Right. You know, which it survives based on original content. 
Hulu, I think, will then replace Netflix for that sort of comprehensive access, which is, I think, another thing we were talking about before the, po- the podcast is people go to Netflix for access. They want... I mean, I always think of uh, um, people who aren't as familiar with Netflix, and I think of, like, Rebecca, for example, uh, my girlfriend, who she didn't use Netflix until... I mean, she was fam- I mean, she's used it before, but she didn't have an account until I brought her an account. And before that, she'd say, I really want to watch this movie tonight. To the extent that you knew that she was assuming that it was going to be on Netflix. Uh-huh. And, and I'd have to say, like, I don't think that's on Netflix. And it's just like, for a second, it didn't register because Netflix is there for access. Right. So if they don't have anything. Yeah, it's, you know, it's an interesting thing to watch play out. And I think, of course, it's going to have an impact. You know, we talk a lot about like social media with Pretty Little Liars Mm -hmm. and like how the show, um, information on the show is disseminated through these other channels or information we think we might know about the show comes out on Facebook or whatever. And I think it's really worthwhile to think about the way technology like mediates what we're going to watch and why things are created and like the Adam Sandler thing is a perfect example because it's like well it can be made cheaply it'll be watched by a large audience and like you don't have to make your money back on it in the same way because you're not selling tickets but at the same time it's like you need good cheap content that will keep people interested and that's you know making Adam Sandler comedy films is one way to do it Mm. Yeah, I um, I think that it makes perfect sense that, that that Netflix is signing a deal with Adam Sandler. You know, I think that it's damning that given the recent uh, stories about from the set of his you know s- soon to be released piece of shit movie that uh, you know that it got a lot of flack and therefore Netflix had to pick up some of that slack because it's or flack because it's their production. Um, you know, they had to defend it, but it made them look bad. Right. And I think that it reflects a lot of their decisions and quality. Um, but I also think that it's that Netflix is no longer concerned with a lot of the things that people signed up for Netflix um, because it was concerned for those things. I said that really weirdly. But, um, well, you know, I mean, I think most people have probably forgotten when Netflix was like, trying to divide itself into two companies to try to break out the streaming from oh, the yeah. the DVD rental <laughs> business. That. And, like, that was this huge disaster. <clears throat> and, like, you know, I remember at the time, people who I talked to who, you know, just casual users of Netflix, who you would think, like, at the time I was like, okay, you're going to charge me another couple bucks because it's expensive to, like, mail DVDs. I don't have a problem with that at all. Yeah. This is an incredible service that I'm getting for a bargain. Of course I'll pay you two more dollars. Right. But I had a, ha- a handful of friends, again, like casual consumers, who were really angered by it. They were angered by the rollout. They felt, like, patronized. Mm-hmm. You know, they felt talked down to by Netflix. And it engendered some real bad will from, like, yeah. their casual users. Um, so they that was, like, this huge bubble for them. I mean, and the stock tanked, and you know, now, of course, it's, they're doing great, and they have all these, you know, hit shows, but that was a hurdle that took them a long time to get over, so it's not like this is a company that, uh, Hulu, you know, is a product of the networks, right? right it so is. it's like, it has a lot more, obviously, the networks don't always make great decisions either. You can look at the NBC ratings for the last, you know, 10 years, right. but 
it gives them maybe steadier footing than what essentially was the startup that has become a juggernaut. I I think that I, I see a lot of similarities uh, between the maybe not as heated as the reaction to Netflix, um, the the Netflix schism uh, in Hulu now charging more four dollars more for non-commercial services i think a lot of people are like fuck you you should do this anyway right like you're being right like thanks for thanks for making me pay more for uh an inferior service that i could pay less for on netflix and not even have to deal with any of this right well it's a weird thing with the price points because essentially you're admitting that you weren't charging enough before that the only way for you to make money on the service was to charge you and show you ads. Yeah. You know, or maybe they were making just a, a boatload of money on it and everyone was getting screwed, which I, is not my impression was what, what was happening no. with Hulu. No. So yeah. by saying like, well, here's, here's how much we actually have to charge you to make this work, you right. know, that to me shows you the desperation of like the original model. I mean, I don't know. I think a lot in terms of like, subscription versus ads in terms of any media and particularly with journalism which is like subscription uh is really just a a drop in the bucket as far as how most media properties make their money Mm -hmm. but i think it's the more honest and fair way to do it because if you have people subscribing then you have real consumers saying i'm interested in your product as opposed to people having who knows what level of interest but you can say, well, a million people saw this, so you slap an ad on it for a rate, and then all of a sudden you go from being a customer-focused business to your customers are corporations and advertisements. And it means you have to have so many more eyeballs versus, well, if you pay more money, you don't have to have as many people, and you can make stuff that has more niche appeal. Yeah. You know? So I think there's a lot of real impact of like if something is subscription or not, if something is... Uh, advertising supported because with Netflix if it's all subscription and they have this pile of money they can make something like Wet Hot American Summer and say this isn't going to get millions and millions of streams but it's it's cheap and we can afford it and it'll be a fun thing to do so why not yeah you know yeah. whereas you might not take that chance if you were making something that had to go on NBC and draw 8 million viewers mm-hmm. um, I think uh and it's it's hard to see on Hulu um a dissimilar attitude because I think that you know with well I th- didn't they pick up the Mindy project they picked up the Mindy I project I mean that's a perfect example of like they have enough money where they don't have to have the same right it's not primarily an ad business I guess if that's going to be the case mm. and yet the ads persist yeah and I think that and I and I think that it took Amazon Prime uh maybe even with transparent to sort of, because Hulu has had original programming and it's been it's been super hit or miss, uh, uh, so it hasn't really made that um, leap yet. But I think that with um, Transparent being so success so su- successful on a streaming service that up to that point didn't really have any success, right, um, showed that taking risks pays off and people are looking for that kind of quality, which is maybe how what Hot American Summer, you know came about um but i do think that it's 
that in many ways our reactions to the ways in which these streaming services change is uh, especially negatively, because that seems to be our sort of knee-jerk reaction is negative. Um, it's more, it's more reflective of who we are as consumers. Oh, absolutely. I mean, nobody wants to be told, this is the thing. It's like even paying $10 for Spotify, uh, which a service I don't like, but like, you know, that's still an enormous bargain. Yeah. You can listen to all the music, you know, a huge chunk of the music that's ever been recorded for 10 bucks. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. Like the idea that you can go on Netflix and instead of paying, I don't, God, I don't, we, I don't know what we used to pay for cable. I haven't had it, I haven't had cable in about six or seven years. But, I think it's like 50 or 60 bucks. Oh, yeah. I mean, if, and if you're getting HBO and you're getting, yeah. ESP, you know, whatever, ESPN, I don't know what, I don't even know what kind of things you can pay for. But you could be paying Everything. this absurd amount of money as opposed to, you have Netflix for eight bucks. You can watch, you know, a good chunk of all the TV shows and movies oh, yeah. and whatever. And, for us, anything that hasn't been on Netflix or anything we wanted to watch the next day, I would just rent on Amazon or we'd go and actually rent a DVD once in a while. Oh, my God. You know, like the one time every couple of months where we it feels like worthwhile to go do that. You know, it's funny because uh, we, um, we are around the corner from a, a very great movie store. Yeah, I mean, really one of the best movie stores probably in the country. Yeah, uh, it's called Movie Madness. Um it's been around for a really long time. Uh, I'm always curious about how it survives. Um, it, I mean, it survives for a number of reasons, I think, based on reputation. It's been around for a while. It has, it's a really fun place to go because it has a lot of memorabilia, um, which is a lot of its appeal. And it also has a really, really great selection. Um, a lot of stuff that is hard to find elsewhere, uh, even like on the internet. Um, you might need a, a VCR in order to watch some of these really obscure movies, right. but it's there if you want right. to rent it. You know, I have a theory about this, and it's the same thing with record stores. Uh, you used to have Warehouse and Tower and Sam Goody and all these chains, and it's the same thing with Blockbuster Video and all these other chains and mm. Best Buy, places that sold movies. And so you had the, all these big box chains... Uh, and after the internet effectively wiped those out as like a mainstream thing, what you're left with are like the geeks and the serious movie fans or the serious music fans. So the mom and pop stores that survived based on fame or devotion or whatever mm -hmm. uh, are now thriving because all their rivals have been destroyed. And so now they don't even, you know, I don't think they compete with the internet. Like yeah. Music Millennium here in town or Amoeba Music, you know, doesn't compete with iTunes. It's no. a separate audience. But now it doesn't have to compete with Tower Records, who's right. a legitimate competitor because you're both selling CDs. Mm -hmm. You know, so I think now is actually a boom time. And maybe I'm wrong, but my impression is like for record stores and any video store that would still be left, like now is a really great time because now you don't really have competition. You know, it's uh, I I sort of thought that too because, <clears throat> and I love I love supporting Movie Madness because they. You know, uh, they all pretty much always have what I want. Um, and if I don't find what I want, I find something that I didn't even know I wanted. But I went there the other day, um, and uh, I parked in what I thought was their parking lot, which used to be their parking lot for a very long time, yeah. and is now only has two spots open for moving, uh, moving Madness customers. All the rest is uh, devoted to Multnomah County vehicles. It's oh. a Multnomah County. It's a governmental parking lot. Wow. Um, which makes me think it's like, 
huh, that's probably another thing that, like, Multnomah County gives, pay, probably rents that parking lot from Movie Madness. Yeah. Um, which is just, to me, seemed like a very weird sign of the fact that, like, <coughs> excuse me, that they need money. And they also raise their prices there. Right. Um, you know, they don't, I think they've had to consolidate some of their collection. Um, you know, I think that it's... Well, I don't think, you know, I don't know if any of these businesses are, you know, I shouldn't say thriving, um, but they're in a position to exist. That right. That was a lot more questionable 10 years ago. Well, it makes you, it, it makes you wonder, you know, I, and I'm sure that m- many of us have at one point or another dreamed of having a r- our own record store. Mm-hmm. And when you logistically, logistically look at what that takes, it is near impossible. Um, because it costs so much money and it takes so much time to make back that investment. Um, right. Well, and, and so much of it, especially with a movie store, you know, literally they bought these things and then you are now renting them. Right. So it's like, right. it's a used product essentially. Yeah. And with record stores, a lot of what they do is used, uh, used CDs, used vinyl, whatever, which they buy cheaply and then sell for a, um, a higher amount. Like, you know, obviously. Um, but I think there actually becomes a moral conundrum to that in a way, because if you want to support artists and record labels or filmmakers or whatever, and you go to movie madness or you go and you buy used vinyl at the fair or whatever, like all of a sudden you're supporting a middleman and you're not supporting that art maker who is in a more tenuous position because of the internet and da da da. Mm -hmm. Uh, so that is actually, I didn't go to record stores for a while because I was like, man, I want to buy it direct because it's more important to me that I make sure more of my dollar, you know, goes to merge records or goes to, um, I don't know, uh, Destroyer or whoever it is, whatever I'm getting that week. Um, and now I go to record stores again because I decided that, you know, I like them and it's worth supporting and right. that it's an important part of the chain. You right. know, but I, it, that that is something I think is worth like being aware of. It's it's funny because um, I think that uh, you know part of what I was getting at was what is it? What makes a record store successful? What makes a movie store successful? Not even successful, just continue to be able to exist. Right. Because I don't know. Well, because I think that yeah. I think that the fundamental flaw of these kind of stores is that you need you need morality to be a part of the act of consuming. Right. And capitalism and morality just don't they really don't mix. Mix. No. And you know, I think a part of it is just like sort of the basic retail issues of foot traffic. I mean, one success story in Portland uh, is Tender Loving Empire. Yeah. I wrote a big story about them on the Oregonian if you want to check that out. But basically they are a record label that's also a retail store that sells stuff on consignment and so on from all types of artists. Mm-hmm. They have drawings, they have you know uh, postcards and soaps and just this whole uh, cornucopia of stuff. But in the back of the store on, on Hawthorne, you have all their records that mm-hmm. they make, and then you have all a bunch of Portland records too, which are selected. So you can go back there and have like this cool curated record store experience. Mm-hmm. But if that's all they were selling, obviously they would have a much harder time. 
right. and all those other things, including T-shirts and so on, enable them to have a higher markup and allow this business. You know, all the when I talked to them, it was about the business and like the impression I got was like all the different pieces of this pie need to come together to have the pie. Mm-hmm. You know, if you start taking out little bits of it, then all of a sudden you're just left with a slice. Yeah. So I think something that is just a record store or is just a video store, it almost has to be a movie madness or an amoeba or a music millennium where it has a history and a reputation and a huge selection yeah. to where why would you go somewhere else because this is the best place. Which so it almost yeah. it like has to be the best thing. It's almost like starting something anew won't work unless you have some sort of novel idea or uh, uh, you cover a lot of ground. Right. And I'm thinking of, because cause like you were saying, unless you're a movie madness or an amoeba, um, you don't have the reputation or the time to collect all these to, things. To, to, to develop that kind of uh, stature. Right. Well, I mean, and you know, Portland actually has this huge amount of record stores, and even though things close and there's turnover, a lot of them have been around for a long time. So maybe that's like that's its own weird sort of world. Uh, but I think you know we can look at the lack of video stores as more of a real problem. And I think that uh, Portland is a perfect exi- is a perfect um, sort of area of study, I think, when it comes to seeing what succeeds as, uh, in these kind of stores, record stores, uh, uh, very much so because of what you just said, there are a lot of them here. And the only ones that I can think of, the only one that I can think of that is new, yeah, that has that, uh, compared to Music Millennium and Jackpot and, uh, Mississippi Records, which has been around forever, um, the only one that's new that actually seems to be succeeding is Beacon Sound on uh-huh. Mississippi. And that is because uh, when they started, they were in a, like a little tiny corner. And then now they are on Mississippi. Not only do they have the foot traffic and sort of the reputation of being on Mississippi, but they're also a performance space. And they put on shows and they draw people into more of an experience. Well, actually, well, yes. Uh, but I think they have to no longer do that anymore because of noise complaints, which uh, brings us to the issues of like new Portland and like people moving here who <laughs> it's a different cultural fit. Oh, I didn't I'll, know I'll that. I'll put it that way. Yeah. I think they've had some issues with it. Oh, that sucks. So, but yeah, I mean, it's like that idea. I mean, origami vinyl in LA does the same thing where it's like, it's a small shop, but it's a neighborhood shop. It's on a very high traffic street and they have concerts and they, do art and like you know trying to make it a place that you would go to hang out as opposed to being just a store mm-hmm. just being a place you go to buy a record you know but i think just in general the more human experience you can have the better and obviously you're not having that experience on hulu or netflix and it becomes up to these retail spaces to try to give you something that you can't get yeah. by just downloading the movie yeah because that's easy mm-hmm. yeah but we want ease yeah we do. Want we do. To be easy. Um, uh, I don't. We've kind of run through our list for the most part. Yeah, I think we've been talking for, been chatting for a while, so we can call it a wrap, I guess. Let me check. I'll check Twitter one more yeah, time. See to if see anyone. It. See if anyone phoned in, <laughs> tweeted in, with any ideas. Uh, while he does that, you can go on iTunes and you can give us those good star ratings. Oh yeah, star us up, need. baby. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 
sexy dom <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, yeah, you can do that. Uh, you can tweet us at at PLGM podcast. Um, we will think of some more things to talk about during the hiatus. Uh, um, yeah, uh, and uh, oh, one thing that we always forget to do um, is plug, plug the beer that we've been drinking. Oh, yeah. Um, we do drink beer a lot during these podcasts. We don't talk about it as much as we used to. We used to do fake beer sponsors. Yeah. Uh, here's another fake beer sponsor. I mean, not fake because they're not sponsoring us, but they actually we received, are. They are real. We received no money <laughs> for the drinking of this beer. In fact, Dom paid money for it. Yeah. And I need to bring the six-pack the next week. <laughs> I, pr- I purchased this beer. <laughs> but I purchased it because I like it. Um, and uh, it's by Full Sail, um, who, as I've spoken of in the past, I think make a very drinkable IPA. Um, they don't... Whenever you see IPAs, especially out here in the, in the IPA-heavy Pacific Northwest, they never, they never rank very highly, but uh, I think that they're just... They make really tasty, dependable beer. They finally came out with the Session IPA and their little... S- stubby bottles yeah um, it's like the red stripe bottle yeah um and they had the session lager for a long time uh and then they had sort of the the dark uh session beer and they finally came out with a session ipa because that's like the popular thing now is session ipas um it's good yeah it's tasty i'm not a big ipa head um but i had one and enjoyed it i think the the session that comes in the red bottle is that the that's the lager that's a great beer yeah that's a great cheap beer I've gotten more into cheap beer again in the last year or so because I sort of ran through all the expensive, weird beers that I kind of wanted to. I mean, mm-hmm. there's always new things, of course, but, you know, I developed a taste again for, like, really good cheap beers because uh, once you kind of get over PBR, I think Rainier is actually a slightly better beer. Mm-hmm. There's The Session. Like, there's, you know, there's a lot of, uh, like, Caldera makes some really good stuff. There's a lot of like just good six pack beer in Oregon that and in Washington that you have access to that is a little bit harder to get. I you know I'm sure everyone has their local thing, but in LA there was not a lot of good cheap beer at least when I left. Right, and also you don't want to drink these like super heavy high alcohol content beers all the time. I think that uh, for me, uh, you know, as I'm in my 30s, I like to drink beer for to enjoy it as opposed to get destroyed get destroyed and it's harder to enjoy beer when you have you know one double ipa that's 10 percent abv and you're just like i i can't even think straight anymore right how am i supposed to have another yeah this is why beer tasting is always uh an issue because you don't you know in beer tasting you don't spit it back out like they do with wine right because you need the you need the aftertaste and the whole beer experience you know and i think you know (laughs) people who drink beer beer judges perhaps i'm not an expert on this but they also probably enjoy getting drunk we are armchair beer judges yes (laughs) um but yeah so we had some session ipa on Uh, the pod yeah so hey full sale um uh, out in hood river uh, if you want to sponsor our podcast, uh, get a hold of us. We will negotiate some terms. Although, you know, having done that Facebook, uh, sir, or that Facebook ad that we talked about last week, <laughs> our demographic, our demographic is like entirely people who are not of legal drinking age. But who knows? I don't know. You may be listening out there in twenty-one plus and in Oregon, and if so, session is delicious. Yeah, and uh, if you are out there listening. Um, no matter what the age, you know, you can go on iTunes and you can give us those stars, bitches. 
Is that our sign off? Is that our sign off this week? That was supposed to be our sign off, but I blew it. Uh, bye, bye, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>